The title of this sermon is The Heart of Unity Number 10. We've been working through 1 Corinthians, and this one is about, obviously, love. The theme is, because love never ends, pursue love. Um, at Christmas time, you will hear the following phrase in advertisements all over, right? Give the gift of love. Singer Bette Midler released a song by that title in 1990. It was called The Gift of Love. I'd like to begin with the question, is love really a gift? Can you give away love like you give away a gift? Like when you give away something or when you, you give away a gift, it leaves the giver with a deficit. Does love work that way? If so, what does love look like? We're in the middle of Paul's discussion on spiritual gifts. In fact, today's passage, chapter 13, is the center of a literary sandwich, uh, which means that this chapter is the meat of Paul's argument on the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of church community, and in particular, on how the Spirit gifts people for the sake of the church. The Corinthian church was quite confused and mistaken. They were just plain wrong and sinful even in how they viewed spiritual gifts, how they used the gifts of the Spirit, how they thought the Spirit of God worked in their midst, and how they treated one another. And so far in chapter 12, we have learned from the Apostle Paul that each has been given a gift of grace for the common good. So God's Spirit has given each of us at least one spiritual gift for the common good or for the sake of everyone else in the body. The Spirit gave your gift to you to use in the body so that the body functions correctly in health and in strength, in unity and diversity. The truth is, you, along with your gift, were given by God's Spirit to this particular body of believers for a purpose. That purpose is for the common good. And only you can do what God gifted you to do in the way that you can do it. No one else is you. Just like a big toe is different than the belly or the shoulder, so you are different than every other member, but for a good reason. A body doesn't need ten big toes. It just needs two. It also means that the rest of the body is depending upon you to fulfill your calling and to exercise your gifting because we also learned last week that God has assembled the body so that the members care for one another. A big toe isn't there for himself. Neither can a big toe be useful by himself. Neither can a big toe sustain himself. Without the rest of the body, it would be dead. The toe needs the stomach and the knee, the ankle, to do their part so that he can do his part. And when the whole body is working together in diversity and yet in harmony, everyone is cared for, everyone is functioning, everyone has a purpose, and the whole body can do the work that God has designed for it to do, which is to love God with all that we are and to love one another as he has loved us. The, first, uh, the Corinthian church had it a bit mixed up, though. Apparently, some in the congregation believed that their gift was given to them by the Holy Spirit for their own good to be a source of pride and prestige, to serve their individual needs. They were using their gifts to showboat what they could do, to put down those less fortunate, and to take advantage of one another. It was a sad state. They sounded eloquent and professional, proclaiming prophecies and authority and polished speech. Chapter 1, we read about that. They sounded knowledgeable and hyper-spiritual, going on and on in unintelligible languages. They prayed to God and in tongues and made the mysteries of God known in mysterious languages. The chapter 14, we'll get to that next week. 
They seem full of faith and piety as they gorge themselves upon meat offered to idols and drank themselves into a drunken stupor in their version of the Lord's Supper. We saw that in chapters 8 through 12. They thought they were something and that using their spiritual gifts however they wanted and for whatever reason was, being, was what being free in Christ actually meant. And Paul says, um, I'm going to show you a more excellent way, a way that is beyond comparison a way that is beyond measurement. The word that Paul uses here at the end of chapter 12 for an excellent way carries the idea of throwing something further than all others. I want you to picture a soldier from the Roman army, okay? Big burly man with metal armor strapped all over his body, armor is glinting in the sunlight, and he and his whole battalion are having a javelin throwing contest, uh, not just how far, but how accurately that they can throw the javelin. Everyone is in the competition, and they are throwing javelins at pumpkins. That would be fun, I think. I think that should be the next men's, uh, or the first men's activity, whatever. Throwing pumpkins with javelins, that'd be great. Anyway, most of the guys are hitting the pumpkin at about 100 feet, right? Only a few are hitting the pumpkin at 200 feet, and I checked the world record for throwing a javelin is 107 yards, a football field, but it's not about accuracy, it's about distance there. But in this, in this competition, no one has hit anything beyond 250 feet. And then steps up Spartacus, and he throws that javelin 310 feet, sinking it right through the center of that pumpkin, right? No one else even comes close. It wasn't even a competition. And that's what, what is it that Paul says is so important, so foundational to the life of Christian that it is like Spartacus's throw, beyond comparison, beyond measurement, something that doesn't even come close to any of the character qualities or motivations or attitudes or behaviors or gifts. Is it faith? Is it knowledge of God? Is it prayer? Is it sacrifice? Is it humility? Is it piety? Is it holiness? Is it faithfulness? Is it truthfulness? No. The quality that is beyond comparison and doesn't come close to any other quality or motivation or attitude or behavior or gift or utterance is love. And so I'll ask the question again, is love itself a gift. Is love given by the Holy Spirit to certain people in the body and not to others? Do some people have it and others do not? Is love a gift to be given away? And I'll answer that question for you. No. (laughs) Love is not a gift of the Spirit. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Love is what should characterize or motivate all the gifts. In fact, if love does not characterize a particular gift, then the giver of the gift is just meaningless background noise, filling up space, a hollow, empty shell of a personality. And we're going to look at that at our first point, the centrality of love. Let's look back at chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Paul says, If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So though I speak eloquently, you can, you know, You can kind of argue with that one, but this is Paul, right? If I speak eloquently in high, articulate human language, 
or even speak in angelic language, speaking the very language of heaven itself, though I possess and perform these incredible spiritual gifts, conveying messages of importance and significance, if that message is delivered without love, I'm a clanging symbol, a meaningless background noise, like a jackhammer in your neighborhood all morning, like a baby clanging pots together all evening as you're trying to, you know, spend some time. Though I possess unparalleled prophetic power and knowledge of God's will and his mysterious future plan, and I'm able to proclaim God's plan and will with power and eloquence, and though I might be mighty in faith so that I can, as Jesus said, command a mountain to be thrown into the sea, if I am a spiritual giant, in other words, as this, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. Just filling up space. I am nobody. The literal translation is that I am no one. Empty space. And though I give away every last thing that I have, house, bank account, cars, toys, clothes, everything I own to the poor and needy, and though I give my body to the Lord as a burnt sacrifice, dying a martyr's death, burned at the stake, if I sacrifice all that I am and all that I have, but I do it without love, I gain nothing. I am a hollow, empty shell of a personality. The sacrifice gets me nowhere. My martyrdom profits nothing. In other words, all religious activity and good works and profound faith does nothing for me or for anyone else if I do it without love. And I want to pause here to give a crucial reminder at this point. And the, and the reminder is this. Love is not, as the online dictionary would uh, define it or suggest, simply a strong feeling of affection. If it were, then Jesus' command to love our enemies would be nonsensical because who can feel a strong affection for someone's enemy, right? Besides, you'll hear of abusers in a marriage relationship say that they love their spouse even as they're abusing them. They may have a strong affection for their spouse, but their actions are not loving at all. So love is more than a strong feeling of affection, as online would suggest. Number two, love is not, as was suggested earlier, a gift. Love itself is not given away. It can't be because there is no one physical action that conveys love or describes love. Love manifests itself uh, as the motive or the way in which something is given or withheld from one being loved. I love my nine-year-old son. When he uh, repents of something he did wrong, I often withhold punishment that is rightfully deserved. That's an act of love. I love my adult children, so I give them the gift of a listening ear, although this ear is bad, so they have to speak into this ear or I won't hear them. But love is the motivation for either giving or withholding something from the one who is loved. Number three, love is not, as our culture would suggest, affirming, affirmation of a person's choice. Love, according to God's Word, does not affirm or rejoice in wrongdoing, but it affirms and rejoices in what is true. According to secular culture, love says, you do you. Whatever you choose to do to yourself or to others, whether that choice is good or it's harmful, evil or righteous, it's okay. We affirm your choice because that is the loving thing to do. That is not truth. That is a false way of thinking. It's not biblical. It's nonsensical. That mindset itself is unloving. Love does not say, go ahead, take fentanyl. It's, it's uh, I affirm your choice to harm yourself. 
Love does not say, yeah, if you feel it is right for you, then I affirm you permanently and negatively altering your body. That's not love. So love is not a feeling. Love is not a gift. Love is not an affirmation. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. But it is a choice, a disposition, a motivation. Love is seeking the well-being of and acting in the best interest of the other person over my own well-being and my own self-interest. Therefore, love is not determined or interpreted by the one being loved, but by the one who's doing the loving. Example, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. So if we, in our unsaved condition, could have picked a way for God to demonstrate his love for us, or if we could have chosen the manner in which God could have acted that would have made us feel like he loved us, I'm sure we would not have chosen the route that he chose to pick. We would not have affirmed God's decision to give us the gift of Jesus who died and then rose again. Right? Because it's not what we wanted, but it most definitely is what we needed. And this is the reason that many people will give for not believing in Jesus, because the act of God doesn't seem very loving. If God is love, then why did he kill his son? Right? Because love is not determined by the one being loved, but by the one who is acting in love. Love is altogether selfless. It is sacrificial. It is long-suffering in that it is willing to suffer, not for itself, but for the sake of somebody else. Interestingly enough, in the last example that Paul gives here, people can do things that appear incredibly loving, giving away all that they have to the poor, being a martyr for a good cause, but though it looks loving on the outside, God knows the heart. And if the heart is selfish, wanting to gain prestige or power, wanting to gain merit with God, wanting to prove one's worth or one's religious piety, or wanting to build one's self-esteem or any other selfish reason, then it gains the person nothing. Their empty space, a meaningless noise. So this begs the question, how will I know if I'm operating in love or not? Well, second point, verse 4, chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What is interesting about chapter 13 is that this short chapter is also a literary sandwich in and of itself. Verses 1 to 3 form the top piece of bread, so to speak, detailing the necessity or the centrality of love and the exercising of spiritual gifts and doing spiritual activities. I want you to notice how Paul begins this incredibly inspired treatise on love by including a few interesting words, right, in, in verses 1 to 3. He will repeat these words later at the bottom half of his argument. The words are tongues, prophecy, knowledge, and faith. Verses 8 to 13 are the bottom piece of bread. They detail the eternality or the continuance of love, even beyond the existence of the gifts and the workings of the Spirit in the life of the church. And so quickly look down at verse 8 and 9. Look at how Paul mentions prophecies and tongues and knowledge. And verse 13, faith again. Same four words. 
So Paul is making the point that these spiritual actions, these spiritual gifts are indeed important and useful and necessary for the body of Christ. And that is why the Spirit of God has given them to people within the church for the common good. But these things are temporal. They are given to us in the here and now to be used in the here and now so that God can prepare his bride for eternity. But these are temporal, okay? The only thing that lasts into eternity, the only thing that is heavenly, that existed before the world began, and the thing which will carry on into eternity is love. And so verse 4 to 7 are the meat of that sandwich, detailing the very nature of the eternal attribute of God as manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Love itself, verse 4 to 7, describe what love is like. And in the middle of Paul's massive discussion on the gifts of the Spirit, on how God's Spirit works in the church to create a gospel-centered community which reveals the very nature and heart of God to the lost, enslaved, the evil, and dying world around us, a community that is a body of Christ. In the middle of this discussion, at the very heart of it, of this discussion, is the most beautiful treatise on love that the world has ever read. It is the most profound description of love in any book on the planet because it describes the love of God as found in Christ Jesus. This passage is often read at weddings. I do it at almost every wedding I'm a part of it to, to encourage the young couple in what it means to love their spouse in the marriage context. But, but this, this is a good application for marriage, but this passage is about so much more than that. In context, the love passage is about how we as God's chosen people interact with one another. And I believe that these four verses are the centerpiece of the whole letter to the Corinthians from Paul. Like, what does a gospel-centered community look like? It is a community that reveals Jesus Christ to the world around us. A community that is defined by the loving gospel of Jesus, the one who, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God something he had to hold on to, but he emptied himself and he gave himself out of love for all of us. You see, Jesus spoke with the tongue of men and angels. Jesus had unparalleled prophetic powers and understood the mysteries of God's will. Jesus had all faiths so that he could remove mountains. Jesus gave up all that he had. Jesus gave his body up as a sacrifice to God. Jesus was not a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He was not nothing. In fact, Jesus gained everything because Jesus did it all out of love for us. And as we read each phrase that Paul used in these verses, I want you to consider the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. And while you're doing that, I want you to notice also in each phrase, Paul is subtly, or not so subtly, presenting a contrast. The contrast is between how the Corinthians were behaving and how Jesus behaved. It's really interesting. He says, love is patient, and kind. And Paul is referring back to what he said about the Lord's Supper. If you remember, he told the Corinthians to wait for one another. Don't eat till you're full while your brother's starving over in the corner. Wait. Be patient and kind. In contrast, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat. Love does not envy. Verse Chapter 3, verse 3, Paul called them out for being envious and jealous of one another, which led to fights and quarrels between them. And in contrast, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He wasn't envious. 
Love does not boast. Paul called them out all over the place in this letter for boasting. Chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 18, just to name a few. The contrast, Jesus was the Son of God, and yet not once did he boast in his position. Love is not arrogant. Paul has scolded them at least three times about their arrogant, puffed-up attitude. Chapter 5, verse 2, 5, verse 6, 8, verse 1. The contrast, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Love is not rude or unbecoming behavior to act in a shameful way. And Paul called them out in chapter 5 regarding their arrogance over the incestuous relationship in their church, sexual immorality. And then in chapter 11, he calls them out over their cultural, uh, culturally shameful actions of uncovering women's heads and covering men's heads. Remember we talked about that? In the contrast, Jesus, rather than acting in a shameful, shameful way, took our shame upon himself on the cross. Love does not insist on its own way. Chapters 8 to 10, Paul calls them out for their insistence upon eating meat offered to idols, mixed with being sexually active, and all the while saying all things are lawful, right? The contrast, Jesus made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant. Jesus did nothing according to his own will or desires. He did only what the Father wanted him to do. Love is not irritable or resentful. Paul called the Corinthians out in chapter 6 about their lawsuits against one another. The word for resentful here speaks of keeping a record of wrongs. And so Paul is saying that love does not keep a record of wrongs. In fact, he said in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 7, why not rather be defrauded? The contrast, Jesus is not irritable, keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus was defrauded for our sakes. In fact, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Back in chapter 5, Paul addressed their boastful arrogance surrounding their freedom to have an incestuous relationship in the church and then boasting about winning lawsuits against one another when love doesn't do that. Love doesn't rejoice or boast in wrongdoing. The contrast, Jesus had harsh words to say about wrongdoing. He grieved and wept over sin and evil. Love rejoices in the truth. Paul, in the spirit of joy and gratitude, way back in chapter 1, verse 4, he said, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that it's given you in Christ Jesus. He rejoiced in their salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. The apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth of Jesus. Love bears all things. The the word to bear means to cover in silence, to conceal the faults of others, to suffer alongside. The Corinthians were not bearing with one another. They were ignoring one another, posturing for position, and belittling one another instead. The contrast, Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Love believes all things. This is not the faith that Hollywood uh, would have you understand. It's not a naive faith in just anything or everything. The Corinthian church was, was fractured because they were skeptical of one another. They didn't believe that some of them should be there. Some didn't believe that Paul was a legit apostle. Some didn't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead, chapter 15. We'll find that out. The contrast, Jesus believed that he would be raised from the dead. Jesus trusted the Father's plan even when it was difficult to do so. Jesus believed that all things work together for good for those who love God. Love hopes all things. 
To hope is to wait for what is promised in joy and confidence and peace. The Corinthians, we will see, were not confident in the resurrection, chapter 15. And so they were not waiting for the promised return of Jesus. And the contrast is that Jesus had hope of the resurrection. And so he went willingly to the cross, sacrificing himself for his enemies, for us, the very ones who hated him, because he knew that there was much more to life than this. Even death in the here and now was just a stepping stone to glory that awaited him and awaits us. Love endures all things. To endure is to remain calm and steadfast under misfortune, suffering, and trial. The Corinthians were not enduring anything. They took folks to court. They were not abstaining from any kind of indulgence of the, of, of the flesh. They were not willing to endure hunger even for the sake of someone else. The contrast, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. In summary, Paul's tone and language here is like, hey, you Corinthians, love is everything you are not. You are a clanging symbol. You are nothing. You gain nothing. However, Jesus is everything that love is. Jesus is a sweet sound in the Father's ear. Jesus is your identity. In Jesus, you gain everything. The loving gospel of Jesus Christ, the life-giving and gracious message of his life, death, burial, resurrection, and return is the center point of all eternity. And every relationship and every action, the love of Jesus is what unites. It is the only thing that can unite people. And why is that? Because Jesus is God's loving gift to us. God didn't give Jesus to us because he was obligated to. God didn't give Jesus to us because he was forced to. God didn't give Jesus to us because he wanted to feel good about himself. God didn't give Jesus to us because he wanted to look good. God didn't give Jesus to us because he was commanded to. God gave Jesus to us because he loved us. God gave Jesus to us because he sought our good above his own. God gave Jesus for the common good. God gave Jesus so that we could be saved. God gave Jesus because he chose to initiate a relationship with us. And he gave Jesus so we could be united to him and to one another in his love. And that is why love never ends. Let's look at verse 8. Our third point, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, love is the eternal bonding agent of the Trinity. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And this has gone on and will go on forever. They are inseparable, and each one seeks the well-being of the other over his own. The Trinity is an unbroken union, a three-in-one Godhead which we cannot describe or even understand. Three persons in one, and yet three persons. How can this be? How can the Trinity be possible? Love. 
Love is expressed in the selfless, sacrificial gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the type of love that the Trinity has for one another all the time, for all eternity. And that is the type of love that God has begun in us and will eventually bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice Paul brings us back to the four gifts he mentioned at the beginning of the chapter. Prophecy will pass away. There is going to be no need for it because we will be in God's presence. Tongues will cease because we will all be speaking the language of heaven forever as we sing praises to our God. Knowledge will pass away because we will fully know God just as he fully knows us, verse 12. And if we can comprehend God, then we can comprehend all there is to know. And faith will one day become sight. We will sing it. We sing it in a song as well. Lord, haste the day when our faith will be sight, right? But until that day, we know in part, we prophesy in part, we see in a mirror dimly, we walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, nothing is as it should be. The whole, the, this world is not perfect and it is full of sin and sorrow and selfishness and self-centeredness. But there is a day that's coming. A day when the perfect will come. The embodiment of perfect love, complete holiness, unending joy, lavish selfish, selflessness, overwhelming graciousness will return. He will come and his name is Jesus. And when he does come, the partial will pass away. The sin will be no more. Sorrow will be forgotten. The selfishness will be unimaginable. The self-centeredness will all be destroyed. We will be mature in Jesus, fully human, complete adults in the loving presence of God Almighty. And Paul likens it to maturing from childhood to adulthood. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. The way we speak now, like children, in our immaturity, in our sin, in our selfishness, our self-centeredness, will all be gone. The way that we think now, like children, from our limited view, from our individualistic mindset, from our cultural grid, will all be obsolete. The way that we reason now, like children, focused on our needs being met, preoccupied with our satisfying our own desires, consumed with our success, will all be destroyed. We will look back at the way that we used to think and speak and reason, and we will not even consider going back to that place. We will put it all away, just as we put away childish things when we enter adulthood, and we won't go back. And Paul is saying that we can begin that process now, and we can experience a glimpse of heaven now as we lovingly relate to one another in the church by allowing the Holy Spirit to complete the work of maturity in us that he has already begun. So how does that process begin? We believe in Jesus, we receive his salvation, and then we choose to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, and we choose to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we do, God's Spirit increases our capacity to love. And we have the privilege of catching glimpses of the Trinitarian love, like catching a glimpse in a mirror of something passing, right? We experience moments of Trinitarian love as in a deep friendship, a, a marriage relationship, or the love that we share with one another. But it is in part. It's like we know it's only the tip of the iceberg. We want to give more, convey the deep, unspeakable, loving desire for the beloved's best, but it's too deep for words. And so although things are imperfect and sin is, sin is still here and relationships are imperfect, we wait patiently knowing that he who began a good work in each one of us will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. One day we will all know Jesus fully, 
even as we have been fully known. Jesus will return, and we will see him face to face. And each of us individually and all of us collectively will fully know and completely understand and thoroughly experience the Trinitarian love of God, even as we have been fully known. What a glorious day that will be. You see, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Faith. We trust that God will keep his covenant promise to us in that just as he raised Jesus from the dead, so he will raise us, those who believe from the dead, to live with him eternally. Hope. We look forward to the day when all will be made new. The broken world will be restored. Sin will be no more. Justice will be served. Every relationship will be mended. Every believer will be made perfect. And Jesus will welcome us home. Love. We love him because he first loved us. By loving God with all that we are, we are entering into receiving a foretaste of, catching a glimmer of the eternal and ultimate loving union with God in glory. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Because faith will no longer be needed. It will be turned to sight. Because hope will be fulfilled. But love, love is eternal. Love never ends. Singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson worded it beautifully in his song, No More Faith. He wrote, I say faith is a burden. It's a weight to bear. It's brave and bittersweet. And hope is hard to hold to. Lord, I believe, only help my unbelief. Till there's no more faith and no more hope. I'll see your face and, Lord, I'll know. There's no more faith and no more hope. I'll sing your praise and let them go because only your love remains. The love of God that is in Christ Jesus is the only thing that doesn't end, that doesn't fade away, that actually grows in intensity and in glory the more and more people that embrace. Because of this, don't get caught up in gifts, Paul says. Don't concern yourself with feelings of affection. Don't seek your own benefit. Instead, chapter 14, verse 1, pursue the love of God in Christ Jesus. I see examples of love being pursued and God's Trinitarian love being manifested all through our congregation. People coming around the sick and the ailing, bringing meals, cutting grass, installing needed house adjustments, or just sitting for a few hours with those that are stuck in their homes. People stepping into difficult relational situations to comfort and speak truth, encourage, give assistance. Folks helping others who are in financial crisis. People stepping into needed positions here at the church to teach and disciple and serve and minister, care for one another. For instance, those folks who give up the opportunity to worship together with us each and every Sunday so that they can invest in the hearts and lives of our children. Guys who come in the middle of the week, give up their precious Saturdays to come and cut the grass so we have a beautiful place to worship. Women who come hours early to prepare a meal that we can share together as we break bread in the presence of the Lord, elders who prayerfully step into divisive situations to stop gossip and complaints, members who come alongside wayward people to point them back to Jesus, and there are countless other activities that folks lovingly do for one another in this congregation in any given week. It's beautiful. My encouragement is keep it up. But don't ever stop improving either. I remember my soccer coaches when I was a kid, they'd always encourage us with our progress that we made, uh, with our skills, but they would never let us become complacent. One year, we were undefeated. We were unstoppable. And I remember at the end of the year, our coach was encouraging, and he only had minor adjustments to make, but he still pushed us hard in practice right up to the end, right? Because he knew that the minute we let up, we digress. 
I want you to listen to what the Apostle Peter wrote in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 5 and following. He said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us very, his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. That is love, by the way, the divine nature. For this very reason, he says, make every effort. Here's this idea of continuance, right? Make every effort to supplement to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Never stop improving, basically, is what he's saying. Nobody's going to be perfect. The Corinthian church was far from it. But God was working in them, and Paul was calling them to a more excellent way. Continue to pursue love, he says, because you see, love is not a gift, it's not a feeling, it's not an affirmation. Love is a fruit. It's the first of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of the fruit of the Spirit hang from the same tree, the tree of the Trinity's love. For, it is, for if you love, then you'll be full of joy because you love God more than anything else. You'll be full of peace because you trust God in all circumstances. You'll be full of patience because you're not concerned with your own interests. You'll be full of kindness because you care about the other person's interests. You'll be full of goodness because you act out of love for the common good. You're full of faithfulness because God has been faithful to you. You'll be full of gentleness because you care for the other person. And you'll be full of self-control because it's not about gratifying your desires. Pursue love because love never ends. Beloved, let us, not love, one, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son to the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father, we just sang it. How deep is your love? It's incomprehensible. It's amazing that you, the God of the universe, the creator of everything that we see, everything that we are, would stoop down and become one of us and die for us when we didn't deserve it at all. That's incredible love. Help us to understand that, to comprehend that as much as we possibly can, and to let that, the, your love change our mindset, change our hearts. Help us to receive that well. And then as we look at those around us, God, I pray that you will help us to love in that same way. We, want to, we look forward to the day when we're going to join you in heaven. Because of what Jesus did, we have that privilege. It's not because of anything we've done because of your lavish love and grace. And we long for that day when we will see Jesus face to face and be able to talk with him and experience in person the love that we have 
experienced here on earth, just a foretaste of it. So work your love in our midst, in our hearts. God, make us into good disciples of Jesus. And I pray that your love would be shed abroad in our midst, but also that it would shine forth into the world out there who is longing for love. They're longing for your love, and they need your love more than anything else. So help us to shine as a beacon in that dark world. Thank you for this congregation. I thank you, God, so much for the love that is shared here, the, the fellowship that is shared here, the spirit of, of your spirit is at move among us, and it is a wonderful thing to behold. It is a glimpse of glory as we come each Sunday and during the week. Thank you for each one here, for what you're doing in our midst. God, you are so good. Thank you for your love. Amen.